Well, this is a, uh, the one Sunday per year that I do a biographical sermon, and this one is on Martin Luther, and, and my, my desire in these sermons is that you would see the grace of God in the lives of the saints. I don't want to lift uh, any saint up so that you walk away uh, even spiritually envious of their gifts or their talents or the impact that they've had in this world. I want to just lift up these saints as imperfect as they are uh, so that you'd be overwhelmed with the giver of these gifts, God himself. I mean, if you see a painting, aren't you drawn more to the painter than the painting? And so it, when I lift up Martin Luther to you and, and declare to you the grace of God in his life, my intent is that it would be drawing you to saying, God, you're unfathomable, you're merciful, and you're kind. I, I, I read through a bunch of books um, and I'll list these on the web. Some are smaller, some are a little bit bigger. The Roland Baton is kind of the classic 20th century um, biography on Martin Luther. Um, it's just easy to read. It's funny. It's interesting. It moves at a good pace. Um, there are other bigger, more scholastic books that are just tedious and difficult. And, um, but Roland Baton is, and I'll put the, um, excuse me for one second. I always know when I don't shave really closely because the microphone is very, very um, attentive. So uh, I'll put the transcript to those who want it. You don't need to take notes. If you want the transcript, I'll send it to you, as well as the um, just send it to the church, and, and we'll get you a copy of it, as well as the details on the books. So th- this is about Martin Luther. Now let me just begin with, A.W. Tozer wrote this about biographies, and I think it's true. He says, next to Holy Scriptures, the greatest aid to the life of faith may be Christian biographies. And over the past 10 years, so I've been doing this, and I do it for three reasons. Number one is that in Romans 15:4, God says that he, he displays the saints before us as witnesses to us. In other words, that they would demonstrate, they would instruct, they would encourage us. But secondly, um, I want you to see the work of God's grace in the life of imperfect saints. That we don't have any perfect saints to declare to you. The imperfect ones are important for us so that we might say, well, God might use us. I mean, look at the flaws in that person's life, and God can still use us. And then thirdly, we use the saints, and we try to declare this once a year, so that you would see the experience that God is moving in every generation among peoples. That every generation is touched by God's grace. We're going to be speaking about the early 16th century today. But God is the same yesterday, today, and always. So that's my desire. Richard Baxter, actually a 16th century Puritan, said, the writing of church history is the duty for all ages because God's works are to be known as well as his words. So that's the intent. So I chose Martin Luther. He's a man of great contrast. He struggled with depression, and yet he had an unmatched wit. Incredibly brilliant and enjoyed, and yet enjoyed the simplest things of life. He was academic, and yet pastoral. He achieved incredible success, and yet he experienced really significant suffering and tragedy. His influence was, is colossal. Not just in his time with, with John Calvin and Martin Bucer and Melanchthon Zwingli. It, these are names that have been lost to us in history. Many of you don't even know these names, but they've had an impact on Western culture. In fact, the influence in Luther's time of his own ministry was so great that this is what one Italian pastor wrote, Giordano Bruno. He said, here's a poem he wrote for Luther. They came 
from all peoples in every land where culture and order were in demand. They came from Italy, France, and Spain, the Poles, the Slavs, and Magyar's plain, the British, Scotch, Portuguese, the Scandinavians from the Nordic seas. Yes, even from the Balkan state, from further Caucasus, they congregate from morn to eve, from noon to night, welding the new day's circle tight. The new day of the gospel was breaking out. This is a man who came from Italy. He would later burn at the stake for his faith. So these people were coming to Luther to be instructed in the ways of the faith. They would ultimately, many of them would die. Uh, but also beyond his time, George Whitfield, John Bunyan, Edwards, John, even John Wesley, his teachings didn't just change theology, but really the course of the world. Luther's teaching affected the city-state. You know, before Rome, the Roman Catholic Church and tradition dominated Europe, after his writing, it was the emerging of the city-state. So political changes, economic changes, human freedoms, where we're going to talk about this later, but he raised up the laity to be equal to the clergy. He raised up the peasantry to be equal with the nobility. So he did incredible work, not just that, but he also established the Protestant church in many ways. Remember, at this point in time, there was no other church. Either you went to the Roman Catholic Church or you were pagan. It was one or the other. It's really hard for us to grasp. But, but all of a sudden, this Protestant church emerged through the Reformation. How do we do church? You know, they celebrated private masses every day, and now they don't do private masses anymore. So what do we do? Open on Sunday? So, I mean, a whole order of church had to be established, of which he was part of. So, what I'm going to do is a quick review of his life. In fact, they call him the German Hercules. So, I'm going to do a quick review of his life, and then I'm going to draw some lessons from it that hopefully will influence us. So let me give you a quick history lesson here. He was born in Eisleben, which is near modern-day Berlin, in November 10, 1483. While his parents ultimately acquired some wealth from the copper mining industry, uh, they were never beyond the mother going outside and collecting sticks for the fire. So they weren't wealthy by any stretch. They were a peasant stock. Um, raised in a strict Roman Catholic home, of course, and, and all, the, all the regulations and responsibilities for that. His father, Hans Luther, that was before his name was Latinized into Luther, wanted his son to have a steadier life, and so he sent him away uh, to be educated to study law. And uh, he earned a bachelor's degree in 1501 and master's degree from the University of Erfurt in 1505 at the age of 23. Uh, his son would never be a lawyer because there was a traumatic event that happened in his life that would change the direction of his life forever, but it would also change the direction of Western culture. And what was that event? Well, it was simply a thunderstorm. Thunderstorm hit. He's walking home. A thunderstorm hit. Um, lightning bolt knocked him to the ground. And in sheer terror of his life, he cried out to St. Anne. He's a Catholic now, and Catholics have patron saints. So as I was raised Catholic, if you were driving, you wanted to pray to uh, St. Christopher. He was the patron saint of the highways. If you lost something, St. Anthony, you ever just turn to St. Anthony, he'll help you. Well, he turned to St. Anne because she was the patron saint of minors. And he said this, help me, St. Anne, and I'll become a monk. Now, Roland Bate in this 20th century biographer said um, kind of jokingly that she kept her promise and he kept his because within two weeks he entered the monastery of the Augustinian order no less that's a very strict and rigorous order and it was here that Luther really came to the fore in terms of his 
fear of God. If you don't understand Luther's fear and struggle of faith, you can't understand him. There's a German word, anfektung, anfektung. I'm not cussing at you. Uh, that it's a hard word to translate, but it means turmoil, struggle, trial, temptation. And he struggled deeply with finding acceptance with God. Now remember the culture that he was raised in, there was a, that hell was a steep reality and life was very short. And so he was terrified before the holiness of God leaving him in despair. His question was, how can man, if God is truly God, how can man stand before God? Now, we've lost the sense of the holiness of God. So we've got to dial back and rec- how can man stand before God? In fact, at the celebration of the Mass, he was a priest, he said this, I was utterly terror-stricken. I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address the majesty? Who am I that I should lift up my eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I'm speaking to the living, eternal, and true God. Many think that this explains his quick response to the monastery. In other words, he was living in terror before God. God's holy, he's sinful, he knew it. And so he was, how do I get right with God? Well, enter the monastery. Back then, is if you became a minister or a pastor, uh, that puts you in better position with God. In fact, Thomas Aquinas, no less than that great scholar, said that entering ministry was a second baptism. In other words, it, it put you a little bit above the rest of people. And so that's why they think that he moved so quickly into the monastery. Anyways, he was ordained a priest in 1507, which initially brought a measure of peace. But acceptance with God and assurance of salvation would not come. In fact, his fear of God only increased. Now, what the Catholic Church said at the time was, that to be right with God, you have to work. Yes, faith, but yes, also works. And so he testifies. When I was a monk, I wearied myself greatly for almost 15 years with daily sacrifice, tortured myself with fastings, vigils, prayers, and every other vigorous work, staying outside, not dressing warmly in the cold, to suffer so that that might please God, so that God would accept him. He said, I earnestly thought to acquire righteousness by my works. He says, if ever a monk could get to heaven by monkery, I would have gotten there. He would confess sins. He would confess every sin. Sometimes he would confess sins up to six hours a day, going through every sin because every sin had to be confessed. Every sin had to be absolved if he was going to be right before God. In fact, here's what Father Stoppitz said. This was his mentor and friend. He finally got exasperated and said, if you expect Christ to forgive you, come in with something to forgive, parasite, blasphemy, adultery, instead of all these little picadillos. So, I mean, he he was very, very studious confessing his sin. But seeing his struggles, Stalpitz suggested he make a pilgrimage to Rome. So going to Rome, he would see the relics. The relics, that is like they had a... had allegedly a piece of the burning bush or the rope from which Judas hung when he died or a chain that held Paul in prison. And if you were to touch these relics, they'd be grace-bearing. And so this mentor and friend thought, well, if he sees the relics, it'll give him a measure of grace and he'll have some relief from this fear of God. And he also climbed the stairs. Now, they have a great movie, by the way, on Martin Luther um, and you can rent it on Amazon. It's, a, it's really, really quite good. I'm, 
I forgot to mention that to you in the beginning, but um, uh, it, it shows this scene very well, that there are these steps that if you wanted to be forgiven of your sins, and if you wanted to relieve a soul from purgatory, purgatory is, um, is a place in Roman Catholic theology where sinners will go who have to suffer before they get into heaven. So all their sins haven't been paid for, they have to suffer there and then go into heaven. And so if you climb these stairs, and these stairs were supposedly the stairs that Jesus climbed before Pilate. They were taken from Jerusalem and put into Rome. And you'd have to climb every stair, and at every stair you'd kneel down and pray and kiss the stair. And then when you get to the top, then they would be You'd be forgiven, and the soul would be released from purgatory. Now, there was a financial contribution that you did have to make before climbing those stairs. It's like a carnival. And, uh, but here's what he said. There was no relief. He says, when I got to the top, the thought kept coming to me. Who knows whether this is true? So when he went to Rome, it was to be a relief for his anxiety. It only exacerbated it because he saw the priests immoral, uneducated, and the rituals and the customs were, were very, very ungodly. And so he came back, and um, he felt greater anxiety, not a lack of anxiety. And here's the irony. He tried to do everything the church had offered to do to relieve anxiety, and he actually increased it. Okay, so after a time, Stalpitz, seeing the towering intellect of this man and yet honest struggle, suggests he goes to the University of Wittenberg to study for a doctorate in theology. And so he did. He studied theology, and once he graduated, he began to teach theology. Now, here's where a crisis happened in his life. It wasn't thunder and it wasn't lightning, but it was the word of God that began to change him. First, what happened is Luther saw, studying Psalm 22, that Jesus had that anfectung. Jesus had turmoil and struggle with the soul. He found it in Psalm 22, where Jesus says, and these words are uh, repeated by Jesus on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So this utter desolation that Luther was feeling that, that God had deserted him was felt by the son Jesus himself. Jesus bore, now Jesus was feeling rejected by God and desolated from God. He even bore in his body the pain of separation. And his question was, why would the son have to feel that anxiety that I feel. He had no sin. He had done nothing wrong. So it came to Luther. The only answer was that Christ took to himself our sin. Christ took all of that which causes an infectum, that spiritual separation from God. He who is without sin and desolation took sin and desolation. It was a new picture of Christ. So instead of seeing Jesus as the frightening and powerful judge, now he sees Jesus as the man of sorrows who has borne his sins. And now God can forgive Luther. It was combined with his meditation on Romans 1. So in Romans 1, 16 and 17, verse 17, he says, For in it, this is for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For it's written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, before he understood this verse to mean God's avenging justice. In other words, God is so righteous, he must punish the sinner. But here's what he writes after having meditated. He said, night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement, the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped 
that the justice of God is that righteousness by which grace and mercy justifies us by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again. I had entered paradise itself through open gates. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. Whereas before the justice of God filled me with hate, because he was in fear of it, now it became expressibly, expressibly sweet in greater love. The passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. In other words, he said, if you have true faith that Christ is your Savior, then at once you have a gracious God. So Luther came to realize that sinners can't be made righteous by what they do. You can work upon work upon work, but God has offered to us a son who would impute or credit to us his righteousness so that God could now be a father to us because God can now be just and forgive us because the son has borne our sin. He says that in this way, forgiveness of sin was now possible through the unmerited grace made possible through the cross, which reconciled mercy, wrath, routed the forces of hell, and gives us grace to walk in newness of life. So this was a major conversion here. That anfuktung, that, that anxiety, that fear was now displaced because of the mercy of Christ on the cross. Okay, so this study opened his eyes to the glory of God and salvation, but it also opened his life to great tragedy and struggle. So this is where the controversy began to hit. As he began studying the scriptures, he sees some of the practices of the Roman Catholic Church, and he realizes they are contrary to scripture. And so he begins to then get into a dialogue with the Catholic Church. First, over the issue of indulgences. Now, let me remind you, we don't know the term indulgence, but an indulgence was simply a reduction in punishment for sin granted by the Roman Catholic Church after confession was made. Now, in other words, you would do enough stuff and the Roman Catholic Church would say, now you're absolved of your sin. Okay, the practice took on a financial component in Luther's time. The promoter, they were, they were selling indulgences to build St. Peter's Basilica. The, the priest from Rome was named John Tetzel. And <clears throat> they began to offer the forgiveness of sins through the giving of money. <clears throat> you could buy satisfaction for sin with financial gifts. You could free a soul from purgatory. Now, uh, this is not advanced now by the Roman Catholic Church, but it was then. And in fact, here's part of his sermon. So John Tetzel would come into a town with an entourage and a treasury box. And here's how we would preach. Listen to the voices of your dead loved ones, relatives and friends beseeching you, saying, pity us, pity us, We are in dire torment from which you can redeem us for a pittance. Do you not wish to? We bore you, we nourished you, we brought you up and left you our fortunes, and yet you are so cruel and hard that now you are willing to, for so little, set us free? Will you let us lie here in flames? Remember that you are able to release them. And then he coined a phrase. He says, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Now, we laugh about that, but in this context, with an uneducated, illiterate people, <clears throat> in fear of the towering authority of the Roman Catholic Church, they were teaching if you gave money, your loved ones would get out of purgatory and go to heaven. That's how they built cathedrals. Well, Martin Luther, now discovering this salvation by grace, 
And this is trashing a genuine biblical repentance. Well, this was the mark that began the quarrel with Rome. With the view of God's holiness and a clear teaching of the word, he pounded this 95 thesis, 95 statements, propositions on the Wittenberg door, the church door, and he was looking for a scholarly debate. Now, this is called, this was done on October 31, 1517. It's known as Reformation Day because it's seen as lighting the fires of the Reformation. He pounded these theses, and he wanted to debate over the practices of the Roman Catholic Church. We know that he wasn't stirring up trouble. We know that he wasn't trying to break up the Roman Catholic Church, as he's often accused of doing. He posted these things in Latin. They weren't in German. They were in Latin because it was going to be, that's the language of academia, and he wanted a scholarly debate. But what happened was his students took it down. They translated it into German. They printed it and spread it throughout Germany. Well, <clears throat> that obviously got things moving. And <clears throat> it was really the shot heard round the world is what it did. It, it began a firestorm of activity. Now, the Pope got wind of it. And here's the Pope's take. He said that he is a drunken German who will change his mind when he's sober. Well, there's nothing further from the truth than that. So soon following, <clears throat> the Pope issued a papal bull or a document excommunicating Luther from the Roman Catholic Church. And he took it and he burned it outside the walls of the city of Wittenberg. He continued writing, and he was a great scholar. <clears throat> he began writing a treatise on the priesthood of all believers. He wrote a treatise on the justification of faith. He wrote a treatise on the sacramental system of the Roman Catholic Church. Well, at this point, <clears throat> the conflict with Rome Remember, that is the wielding power in conjunction with uh, Emperor Charles V. They had all power over Europe. They summoned him to a meeting. It was called the Diet of Worms, or you'd read it and say the Diet of Worms, but it's pronounced Diet of Worms. And it was an assembly of religious and political powers. And they brought him before them. There were other conferences that they had to try to dissuade him from his theology, but this is the big one. He's standing before sheer power, and they're asking him to recant from his works, to, to make uh, repentance from his work. And here's what he said on April 18, 1521. In fact, they brought him on April 17, and he looked at it, and he's standing before all these people, and they were saying to him, who are you that you disagree with all of us? These were the brilliant minds of the day. This were the political powers of the day. He's a single man, standing before them. So he asked for a one-day recess that he might go back and seek God's face and confirm his heart before God. And so on April 18th, <clears throat> the next day, 1521, he spoke these famous words. He says this, to their call for recantation. He said, unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I, can do not, I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. In so doing, he declares the Bible to be the supreme authority over all life and practice, it resulted in a price being put upon his head. He had 21 days before his execution to go 
back and to put his affairs in order. On the way back to Wittenberg, uh, masked men who were actually friends of a protector of Martin Luther, Prince Frederick, captured him and stole him off to the castle Wartburg near Eisenach. So he didn't know that they were friends, but they took him to the castle, and of course, then he stayed there. Over the next few years, he would stay in this castle and he'd translate the New Testament into German, which would then spread the Reformation now because the people couldn't read Latin, but they could read German, and they began to read the scriptures. He would then lead, continue leading the Reformation for the balance of his life through lecturing, teaching, preaching, and administering the church. He stayed as the chair of theology in the Wittenberg University until his life was over. Now, all was not perfect in this Reformation, in this time of Luther. In fact, there was a major setback over the idea of the Lord's Supper. Martin Luther believed that the Lord's Supper had the actual presence of Christ over and under and around the communion. Uh, Ulrich Zwingli believed in a symbolic presence, that there was no actual presence of Jesus, because remember, the Roman Catholics are over here. They believe that the bread and the wine actually become the body and blood of Christ. It's called transubstantiation. So there was a disagreement, and they never found balance. So immediately you see a bit of a split in the Reformation. There was another sad conflict uh, that occurred due to Luther's writings, although I wouldn't attribute the responsibility to him. He wrote on Christian liberty. He wrote, as I said, on the peasantry before God being equal to nobility and how the laity were equal to the clergy, that all men and all women are equal. Well, the peasants, of course, it was a feudal system then, so you had the nobility and you had all the rest of humanity serving them. Well, they revolted, thinking, hey, we're equal before God, we don't have to submit to your your reign, and so they revolted. And upwards, the numbers vary, but between 50 and 100,000 peasants died as the nobles suppressed the revolt. Now what Luther did was he wrote the treatise on the freedom of the human, but then when the stirring started to happen, he wrote a piece on the nobility's right to exercise authority. They took that. Both parties took his writings to the extreme, and it really led to a tremendous carnage in Europe at the time. Now, he didn't lead uh, alone in this. He did have a family. On June 13, 1525, at age 41, he married a nun, Catherine von Bora. In fact, he claimed to get married to make the angels laugh and the devils weep. Here's a nun and a monk, and they're going to have children. Their marriage was marked by joint happiness. He said this, there's no more lovely, friendly, charming relationship, <clears throat> communion, and company of the good marriage. He would actually refer to her affectionately as Katie my rib. He said, I would not exchange Katie for Paris or all of France or Venice or all of Italy, for God has given her to me and he has given me to her. Now, much is written about his wit. He had a razor wit, but she was very funny herself. In fact, one time when he was struggling with depression, which he often did, uh, she couldn't change his attitude. She couldn't counsel him out of his darkness. So she went upstairs and got in a black dress. And so she comes down, and uh, he goes, are you going to a funeral? And she said, no. And she said, uh, but since you're acting like God is dead, I thought I would join you in the morning. <laughs> Together they would have six children and adopt four more children from relatives that had previously died during the Black Plague. They made their home 
In a former monastery, the Prince Frederick, his protector, if you will, gave him the monastery as a home. It was a large home, had an opportunity to host um, ministers, students, uh, as well as it became a hospital during the Black Plague when a lot of people fled the city because plagues would, would spread very fast in a city as opposed to in the country. Uh, people would flee, and, uh, but he stayed there and opened his home to be a hospital. In this home, of course, would produce table talk. So if you ever go on the web and you type in Luther's table talk, they just, they're collected conversations that Luther had with his students and family over issues from, from the dog, like one thing he said about the dog, the, uh, they said that they were cutting meat, and Luther's holding a piece of meat, and he's about to eat it, and his dog is just staring at him. And so he says, if I could only pray like the way the dog watches for meat, I'd be a more godly man. He, all these little cute axioms and words, you'd talk on deep Christology, and then you'd talk about the nature of life. So very, very interesting, and so incredibly rich that the students would fight for the opportunity to take notes on what was discussed. Now, his final days, he would succumb to death while traveling to mediate a dispute between two brothers in Eisleben, which is his hometown. It was here in the winter of 1546 that he again fell ill. Knowing the end of his um, life was near, he drafted his last will and testament. He began with these words. He says, I am well known in heaven and on earth and in hell. He knew the impact that he had being at that place of the Reformation. Trying to comfort his wife, he wrote her, Free me of your worries. I have a caretaker who is better than you and all the angels. He lies in the cradle and rests on a virgin's bosom and yet nevertheless sits at the right hand of God the Father. Here's, was, here's the last prayer on February 16th. He said, I thank you, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you have revealed your dear Son to me in whom I have believed and whom I've preached, confessed, and trusted. And then he finished quoting John 3.16, in Psalm 31.5 in Latin, he prays the ancient prayer of Simeon, you know, found in Luke 2, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace. And he says, yet I know as a certainty that I shall live with you eternally and that no one shall be able to pluck me out of your hands. And so his friends around his bed said this, they asked whether he was steadfast, if he was ready to die steadfast in Christ and in the teachings he had preached. And here's what he said, last words before falling silent. He says, yes, we are beggars. This is true. In other words, Luther knew fully, we bring nothing to the table to be made right with God. It is all of Jesus Christ. He is the Savior, complete, total, absolute. What we bring is our sin. We're beggars, every single one of us. And he knew that thoroughly. He was carried back to Wittenberg as thousands lined the route. He was buried underneath the pulpit of the castle church in Wittenberg the very church that he nailed the 95 Thesis to the door. And this is what his wife wrote of his life. Who would be sad, for who would be sad and afflicted at the loss of such a precious man as my dear Lord was? He did great things, not just for a city or a single land, but also for the whole world. They knew they were standing on the precipice of something huge in history. So that's kind of his life. I really would encourage you... Um, uh, to look through some of these books, like there's a book by Stephen Nichols. It's a very thin, it's easy to read, it's fast-paced. You would find it very helpful uh, of giving you a broader breadth of his life than I obviously have been able to do. But let me just pull out some lessons for you to consider. And this is where now, okay, that's your history lesson. Now, what do we do with this sort of thing? I want to make it practical for you. Um, 
The first thing is we find in his life, the gospel is the lifeblood of the church and the joy to the sinner. So remember, the bulk of Luther's objection is simply this, that the, uh, the church didn't teach what true repentance was. How does one get right with God? Uh, people have asked me that. How do we receive this divine forgiveness, and how are we made right with God? Well, here's what he writes. The true treasure of the church is the holy gospel. The gospel of God is something which is not very well known to a large part of the church. According to the apostle in Romans 1, the gospel is the preaching of the incarnate Son of God given to us without any merit on our part for salvation and peace. It is a word of salvation, a word of grace, a word of comfort, a word of joy. He finishes and says, Therefore, the true glory of God springs from the gospel. At the same time, we are taught that the law is not fulfilled by our works, but by the grace of God who pities us in Christ, and that it shall be fulfilled not through works, but through faith, not by anything we offer to God, but by all that we receive from Christ and partake with him. So this is what this justification by faith, being declared innocent by God because of the merits of Christ, this is what removed his anxiety. For us, it's the same. What removes our anxiety is not that you had a good week or not that you read your Bible six times out of seven. What removes our anxiety is we have one who has lived a perfectly righteous life that the father looks at the son and says, well done, my good, or says, with whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. So if God is pleased in Jesus and by faith we are in Jesus, then he's well pleased with us. That takes away the anxiety that we have between, will he accept me if I die today? If I die tomorrow committing a sin, will I be right with God? It's the merits of Christ applied to the account of the sinner that makes him right with God. And you know how you feel about this. How do you feel when you think about God as a father? Does that, do you have those feelings of love and sensitivity to God? Do you feel that he loves you like a good father? Because many times when we feel that God is distant and cold, it isn't that God is distant and cold. It's we're coming to him with our bag of goodies that isn't very good. And we're not coming to him in the power of the gospel, knowing that my place before God is righteous because of Christ. And what that does is it doesn't create a licentiousness about our life. It creates a love for the Savior. And our affections swell because he has saved us. So the gospel always has to be the lifeblood of the church and the joy of the Christian. Secondly, the foundation of all Reformation, not just this Reformation, but the Reformation of our lives, is going to be found in the Scriptures. Luther didn't read the Bible until he was 20. He had been through much education, never even read the Bible. Why? It was in Latin. They didn't read it, or it wasn't part of the curriculum. Only the priests read it, because only they were trained to interpret it. Well, once he began reading it, he would read it twice a year for years. This doesn't mean that he didn't read other books. His mind was so towering that he could quote systematic theologians of a previous day, and yet students said he still knew what was on every page of the Bible. This knowledge of the Scriptures and this truth that the Scriptures are the Word of God is what gave him that fearlessness to stand and say, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. It isn't it isn't bound up by the fear of what you can do to me. It's captive to the word of God. In fact, he said this about the Reformation. He said, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. 
And while I slept, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever afflicted such losses on it. I did nothing. The word did everything. So the question is, many of us here, you're languishing in the faith. It doesn't feel as stirring to you. And you think, well, if, if we had different music or different preaching or different size of the church or different style of this, I don't think that's it. I don't think that's the answer for languishing faith. I think there's a loss of love and commitment and trust in the word. That the word of God is what gives life. Jesus himself said, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the house built on the rock. That's what has a solid life, a reforming life, is that we don't just hear the words of Christ, but we put them into practice. Jesus did say the alternative was to hear the words of Christ and to not put them into practice, and then you're like a house built upon the sand. So Jesus is just echoing this, and Luther is just echoing Jesus here. So think about it. What is your commitment? What is your actual belief? Not what's your cognitive belief. Many people, I know most of us would say, no, 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 I believe the Bible's God's word. But in practice, would that be evident to you? Would that be evident to us? I don't want to make you feel guilty. I just think that this is bedrock for us. It was bedrock for him. It's going to be bedrock for us. Jesus said it's bedrock for us. So assess yourself. Where are you in the word? Is it difficult to read? Absolutely. It's not the paper, but the paper doesn't give you bedrock life either. It's the scriptures. It takes difficulty. It takes mind. In fact, Luther, when he was studying Ecclesiastes, he said, I'm fighting with Solomon to understand it. He, he, would, he said, I'm pounding Solomon to understand it. So here, even a mind of his, there's a struggle, but there's fruit. Boy, and there's blessings from it. Okay, the next one. Uh, Luther would encourage us to consider that recognition of sin precedes salvation. This is really important for us today. Here's what he said. God must destroy in us illusions of righteousness before he can make us righteous. We must relinquish all claim to goodness, admitting guilt before there can be hope in us. He said, whom he would save, he must first make a despairing, a despairing sinner. Man's corruption must be understood before his eyes can be opened. Now, why is that important? Well, many of us see our lives and we see that we're pretty good people. And the gospel comes along and can add to it. It can help us. It can be an additive to life, kind of like a vitamin pill. You feel pretty good? I'm going to take a vitamin pill. I'll even feel better. And, and what Luther's saying is, no, we can't take our goodness and add his goodness to it. We have to recognize that apart from God, we are what? Nothing. And so it's all of Christ. And so that's why we want to hit the despair of sin and recognize it so we can find delight in the gospel. If you feel that you're adequate, almost enough for God, then you'll never come to fully appreciate and be overwhelmed with Jesus. You'll be thankful for him because he's adding to what you've already done as opposed to being your life. He said this, this is after he came to faith. He said, I'm afraid of my own heart more than the Pope and all his cardinals. I have within me the great Pope, self. He said, we are beggars, those last words. So, so we want to understand the total ruination of which the gospel draws us out of. Now, this gets to the heart of repentance. So repentance in the Christian faith is not just your moral reformation or my attempts to be better. Is it worthwhile to live in a manner worthy of the gospel? Absolutely. But what reformation is, or excuse me, what repentance is, is it's, it's, it's not an adding to. 
So, for example, in our culture, we are self-promoting, often self-actualizing, and, and we don't want to hear this idea of, no, you are a sinner that needs to be saved by grace. This is the greatest struggle with the Christian message in the world. It is. When you tell a person they are inadequate to please God of their own strength and power, it offends people. And this is why Paul said it's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's a, excuse me, it's a stumbling block to the Greeks and a scandal to the Jews. Uh, or foolishness to the Greeks, sorry. Foolishness to the Greeks and a scandal to the Jews. Now, we don't want to hear it. We want to think that we're moral enough. But true repentance begins when we begin with the fact that we are absolutely without hope, save Jesus. Okay, just a few more. Trials develop our theology. As I mentioned, he was plagued with physical sickness. Most of it, he said, came from the rigors of his life when he was in the monastery for 15 years. He subjected himself to prolonged fasts. He subjected himself to freezing temperatures. Again, he brought this idea, if I suffer pain, then God will be happy with me. He had uh, uric acid, kidney stones, severe arthritis, heart problems. He had digestive disorders that were significant. He went through emotional pain. His 14-year-old daughter, uh, Magdalena, died of the plague. He suffered from the continual pressure. Many people were dying because his teaching but he was in relative safety. That caused him great struggle to think that other people are dying. He said, why am I not worthy to die? He would cry out to God. So, uh, in fact, the the song that Catherine played so beautifully and that we're going to sing at the close of the service, The Mighty Fortress is Our God, was written out of the pain of watching his son almost pass into death. But here's what he said about trials. He says, the trial teaches us to know and understand, but also to experience how right, how true, how sweet, how lovely, how mighty, and how comforting God's word is. I did not come to my theology of a sudden, but I had to brood ever more deeply. My trials brought me to it. One who has never suffered, he said, cannot understand what hope is. So, folks, all of us are going to have trials. We don't want to just white-knuckle through it. We want to be a steward of it. What I mean by that is when a trial comes into your life, we just not looking why, God. We're not just saying deliver, God. You're saying, God, lead me to your riches in the midst of this trial. You will face trial. Every single one of us will. Will we steward it? Will we see that God is sovereign even in the trial? Will we find his grace sufficient? What Luther's arguing is that it's only in the trial that we find the experience of his power rather than just understand it on a cognitive level when we're going down the lazy river. Oh, we can affirm the sovereignty of God. But it's when we're in the midst of the trial that the sovereignty of God envelops us like a warm blanket and comforts us. Okay, all figures of life, all great figures are a mixture of greatness and weakness. We know this from his life. We see it in ours. He was called the man with legs of iron and feet of clay. I want to be perfectly upfront with you. His life was imperfect, and he had many excesses that were not helpful to him or later generations. I'm speaking about certain indiscretions. If you read some of the conversations in Table Talk, they have a certain coarseness to them that might make you blush a little bit. Colorful language um, sprinkled um, in many different places. Now, he would talk. He kind of had a bit of a potty mouth. Maybe could have cussed a little bit. They had a brewery next door. Uh, he had a, there was a certain, but I want you to remember this when you read it, because oftentimes people take it out of context. They lived a very coarse life. You lived in a city. They had no sewage. They had, they had no sewer system as we do. They had fish markets. 
slaughterhouses. People didn't bathe. One time his wife came back and said the church was full and it stunk. People smelled. It did. There's a certain coarseness to life. People weren't clean. They didn't brush their teeth as we do. And so there was a certain roughness to life that engendered, you know, talking about these things didn't seem so out of place when they lived that way. Now, there were things that he said. He often had a bit of vitriol uh, with some, in some of his language towards other people, and that was unfortunate. Uh, he often spoke in very harsh terms. Once asked by the Prince of Bradenburg why he had to use such excessive language, he said, I can cut through a willow tree with a bread knife, but to cut through tough oak requires an axe and wedge, and even with these, one can hardly split it. In other words, you know, his language is often very difficult um, to people that were his opponents, and he felt that he had to speak with a harsher language to get through the thickness of their skin. I, I question that. Um, I think he's known, in particular, his words to the Jews. His, one of his last works in 1543 was a, a treatise entitled uh, The Jews and Their Lies. And uh, some argue this proves his anti-Semitism. Um, it was used by the German high command in World War II um, to advance the atrocities committed at the Holocaust. And when you read it, it is very, very difficult. There's no doubt about it. Many authors want to argue that he wasn't condemning the Jews on racial grounds, but on religious grounds. Because if you read his language against the papists and against the Muslims, it has the same ritual to it. But it was still harsh. And I, I imagine that if he played again. So he, he's a man with clay feet, and he displays it there. And we have clay feet. And boy, wouldn't it be interesting as a church if we honored the clay feet that each of us have and give each other a little bit of room as we tend to make mistakes. Okay, two more and then I'll stop. All believers have equal standing before God. This was a big tenet of Martin Luther. It's called the priesthood of all believers. I mentioned it already. The peasantry is equal to the, to the nobility and the, and the laity is equal to the clergy. This was not known then. You still struggle with it. You know, sometimes you still think the prayer of an elder is more important than yours. This would go contrary to the scriptures that you have one mediator between God and man, that's Christ. We are all on equal footing. In fact, he said this, the milkmaid and the carter, or the carrier of manure. So the milkmaid and the carter of manure are doing a work more pleasing to God than the psalm singing of a Carthusian. In other words, just because you're singing psalms, you could be doing it with a wicked heart. The guy carting manure, doing it for the glory of God, is more pleasing to God. And then last, God uses history to advance his purposes. This is something you and I need to remember. Psalm 33 uh, Nick read it at the beginning, but these are verses further down the psalm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever in the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. I want you to know that God prepared Luther for this time. God works and directs history. 1517 was a powder keg. How could this happen? Well, there's a number of factors here. How could Martin Luther... Start by pounding 95 Thesis on the door. You have to see the, this collision of events. You have the Roman Catholic abuses in the 14th and 15th centuries that were just financial abuses, their moral abuses. People were, had a growing distrust and disdain for the established church. You had the Renaissance. The Renaissance came on and began to, to turn back to the original documents. 
Erasmus put forth a New Testament in Greek, which brought up the original languages again. Uh, you also have uh, nationalism began to brew in Europe at the time. So nationalism, you know, Germany started to see themselves as unique. They didn't want their money going to Italy to build cathedrals down there. And then you have the printing press being uh, developed and invented just a few years prior. So all these things came together. So when Luther started this thing, it was like taking a match to a bomb. He wasn't the bomb. He just happened to bring the match. God had orchestrated such events that this thing came together and because God's sovereign over history, and we see that in Luther's life. So there's much we can learn, but, but here's what Karl Barth said about Luther. He says, what else was Luther than a teacher of the Christian church whom one can hardly celebrate in any other way but to listen to him? So I encourage you to get one of these books, read about his life, and, um, and allow, allow your own heart to be stirred with what God might do in your life as you see him work in the lives of others. So I'm going to uh, close us in prayer, and the music team can come forward. We'll um, close the service after, after this prayer. Father, I do thank you and praise you for the grace that you've given to us in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you have uh, made clear in Scripture, and you've opened our eyes to it, uh, that in Christ alone is there redemption, forgiveness, wisdom, and righteousness, that he is that for us. Father, we thank you for the Son. We thank you for the work that he's done. We thank you for the grace that you've given to us in the saints of old, particularly for this saint. Father, we, we know that his life was not perfect, and we don't want to emulate his life. We just want to learn from it. We want to live the lives that you've given to us with the gifts and the talents that you have given to us. We want to live in a way, Father, that those closest to us will thank you for our lives, and we need your grace to do that. And so, Father, would you be honored now to give us that grace, and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.